So I've talked about this before, but part of um, effective resisting is effective self-care. Our minds are very powerful indeed, but most of the time we don't have as much control over them as we could or should. Um, And that's one of the things I like about Buddhism is it's not so much a religion, but rather a prescription for how to take control of our own minds and focus and regroup our energies and focus them on the things that we want to accomplish. So in today's episode, I wanted to read you a little bit from The Issue at Hand, Essays on Buddhist Mindfulness Practice, and in hopes that maybe you'll get something out of uh, this um, as, as I have. So stay tuned, uh, because in just a moment, we will get into it, and we're talking about the Four Noble Truths. Okay, welcome back. Um, Again, uh, this is a, a reading from The Issue at Hand, Essays on Buddhist Mindfulness Practice by Gil Fronsdale. Now, um, just, uh, let's see, um, Gil is a teacher um, of meditation, mindfulness meditation and insight meditation. Um, He's well respected and and highly renowned. And um, he, he makes the teachings that are, you know, thousands of years old, very clear and accessible to the modern day people. So it starts with a verse from the Dhammapada, which is a book of sayings from the Buddha. Just this is the path. For purifying one's vision, there is no other. Follow it and you will bewilder Mara. Follow it and you will put an end to suffering. Dhammapada 20, or 274 through 275. The Four Noble Truths On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Kasambi in a grove of trees. Then the Blessed One took up a few leaves in his hand and addressed the bhikshus thus. And by the way, bhikshus is um, another word for monk. So what do you think, bhikshus? Which is more numerous? these few leaves that I have taken up in my hand or those in this grove of trees. Venerable sir, the leaves that the Blessed One has taken up in his hand are few, but those in the grove of trees are numerous. So too, bhikshus, the things that I have directly known but have not taught you are more numerous, while the things I have taught you are few. And why, bhikshus, have I not taught you those many things? because they are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of the holy life, and do not lead to peace. And that was from the Samyutta Nikaya, uh, verses 437 through 438. Okay, so, um, as this 
Sutta, which Sutta means a teaching of the Buddha. As this Sutta shows us, the Buddha taught only a very small portion of what he knew. Elsewhere, the Buddha said, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. This is one of the simplest definitions of Buddhist practice and speaks to our capacity to move from suffering to freedom from suffering. From this place, we can meet the world in a compassionate and receptive way. Our tradition is very simple. Some people might feel it is poverty-stricken because it has just a handful of leaves. It doesn't have all the leaves on the trees in the grove. Some people may be dazzled, trying to focus on the immensity of all the leaves. In the Theravada tradition, the focus is on understanding suffering and how to become free of it, how to become happy. What we need to know to become free is actually very little. In his first sermon, Turning the Wheel of Dharma, the Buddha taught about suffering and the end of suffering in the form of the Four Noble Truths. After more than 2,500 years, they have come to us as the core teachings of Buddhism. Almost all Buddhist traditions consider the Four Noble Truths to be the very central teachings. Intellectually, they are easy to understand, but it is said that a deep understanding of the full impact of these Four Truths is possible only for someone whose liberation is fully mature. When he formulated the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha borrowed a medical model. At the time of the Buddha, doctors would recognize the problem, define its cause, formulate the prognosis for a cure, and then prescribe a course of action. The Buddha adopted this formulation when he stated the Four Noble Truths. One, suffering occurs. Two, the cause of suffering is craving. Three, the possibility for ending suffering exists. And four, the cessation of suffering can be attained through the Noble Eightfold Path. I think it is significant that he chose to follow a medical model because it avoids metaphysics. The religion of the, of the world tend to be imbued with metaphysical or cosmological beliefs that followers are required to accept before the rest of the system can make sense. But the Buddha felt that metaphysical speculation was not beneficial in understanding liberation, the freedom from suffering. He avoided dogma. He offered practices and insights that we can verify for, the, for ourselves rather than a doctrine to believe in. Indeed, part of the brilliance of the Four Noble Truths is that they offer a guide to the spiritual life without the need to adhere to any metaphysical beliefs. The Truth of Suffering The first Noble Truth simply says that suffering occurs. It does not say life is suffering. That suffering occurs perhaps does not seem a particularly profound statement. Suffering comes with being human. Pain is part of the human condition. 
we stub our toe and it hurts. Our back goes out. Even the Buddha was subject to physical suffering. At times, he declined to give a Dharma talk because of pain in his back. Emotional pain is also inevitable if we are open to the world. When other people suffer around us and we are open to it, we ourselves sometimes feel discomfort through our powers of empathy. Part of being human is to relate to and feel what is going on around us. However, pain is not the kind of suffering that the Buddha was trying to help us become free of. In the context of the Four Noble Truths, we can distinguish between inevitable suffering and optional suffering. Optional suffering is created when we react to our experience. For example, through anger at the inevitable suffering of pain or by clinging to joy. When we suffer from physical pain or illness, we can become self-judgmental. What did I do wrong to have this thing happen to me? We attack ourselves or we blame others or we become angry, sad, or depressed about the suffering in the world. Optional suffering is added when we react with aversion or clinging, justification or condemnation. These reactions add complications and suffering to our lives. It is possible to experience the inevitable pain of life in a straightforward, uncomplicated way. If pain is inevitable, life is a lot easier if we don't resist it. So the teaching of the Four Noble Truths does not promise relief from inevitable suffering that arises out of being human. The suffering addressed by the Four Noble Truths is the suffering or stress that arises from the way that we choose to relate to our experience. When we cling, it is painful. When we try to hold our experience at a distance or push it away, that too is painful. We cling to or push away from our experience in an infinite variety of ways. So side note here, um, it's all about how we react to the experience. And that's what the Buddha teaches. The way to practice with the Four Noble Truths is to become very interested in our suffering. Ancient texts say that no one comes to the Buddhist path except through suffering. From a Buddhist perspective, the recognition of suffering is sacred. It is worthy of respect. We need to study our suffering to get to know it well in the same way that we hope our doctors take our illnesses seriously. If suffering is powerful in our lives, we have a strong motivation to study it. But not all suffering is monumental. What we can learn from more subtle suffering helps us to understand the deeper suffering of our lives. So it is also important to study minor suffering in our lives, our frustration with a traffic jam or irritation towards a coworker. We can study our suffering by attending to where and how we cling. The Buddha enumerated four kinds of clinging 
to help us understand our suffering and what we suffer about. The one Westerners might consider easiest to let go of is grasping to spiritual practices and ethics. We may grasp our practice because we cling to the hope of freedom from suffering. We may grasp the rules of spiritual practice, thinking that all that is required of us is to simply follow the rules. Or we might use our practice to create a spiritual identity. We may grasp our practice to run away from life, or we may grasp precepts and ethics for security. Sometimes we feel the Buddhist path is so wonderful that we become attached to getting others to practice also. Clinging to spiritual practice causes suffering for ourselves and discomfort for others. The second type of clinging is grasping to views. This includes all opinions, stories, or judgments that we hold on to. These can have a powerful grip on us and on our perception of the world around us. Believing in views and basing our actions on them is something that few of us question. Many of our emotions arise out of views. Even our sense of self can be constructed from them. A classic example that illustrates how views create emotions is how you might react if someone misses an appointment with you. You had a date. You are waiting on the street corner in the cold and the person doesn't show up. This is all that is actually happening. To those facts, we often add a story. The person doesn't respect me. With that evaluation, anger arises. The anger doesn't arise because we are standing on the street corner and someone hasn't shown up. The anger arises because we are fixated on the story, which may or may not be true. The person could have had an accident and be in the emergency room. We need to know what our interpretations or suppositions are and then hold them lightly prepared for the possibility that they might not be true. Or if they prove true, then we need to know how to act wisely without clinging even to the truth. The third form of clinging is grasping to a sense of self. We construct an identity and hold on to it. The construction of an identity or self-definition is actually the construction of a view. It is the story of me, and we attach to it rather than just letting things be as they are. Maintaining and defending a self-image can be a lot of work. It can fuel a lot of self-conscious preoccupation with how we speak, dress, and behave. We evaluate everything according to how it relates to ourselves, causing ourselves endless suffering. The fourth type of clinging is grasping to sensual pleasure, which includes aversion to discomfort. Now, in the Buddhist texts, this is the first thing, the, uh, the fir first in the list of things that we cling to, but I put it last because it sometimes puts people off. Sensual pleasure itself is not the problem. Our lives will bring us many sensual pleasures. The problem is that we cling to them. 
William Blake expresses this beautifully. He who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. Attachment to sense pleasures is so pervasive in us that many of us feel something is wrong when things are unpleasant. But unpleasant situations are just unpleasant situations until we add a story to them. Confusing pleasure with happiness is a powerful fuel for the attachment to pleasure. An important part of Buddhist spiritual practice is discovering a happiness not connected to objects of desire and pleasure. With this discovery, the seductive enchantment of sensual pleasure begins to lessen. Stay tuned, because after the break, we will finish this chapter of the book and have a little discussion about it. Okay, welcome back. Um, in this segment, we're going to read about the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, which cessation means, you know, the end um, of suffering, and then the truth of the path that leads to the cessation of suffering. So here's the meat of it. The truth of the cause of suffering. The word dukkha, which we translate as suffering, is closely connected to the word sukha, which means happiness. They both have the same root, ka, which means etymologically the hub of a wheel. Du means bad, while su means good. So etymologically, dukkha means a wheel out of kilter, or a wheel off-center. The second noble truth states that what brings us off-center, what causes our suffering, is craving. In Pali, the word is tanha, which literally means thirst. It is sometimes translated as desire, but this tends to suggest that all desires are a problem. What causes suffering is desire or aversion that is driven compulsive. Craving means both being driven toward experiences and objects as well as feeling compelled to push them away. Whether craving is subtle or gross, if we aren't mindful, we won't be aware of how it contributes to our suffering. Part of the reason that Buddhism puts a tremendous focus on the present moment is that suffering only occurs in the present moment. In addition, the craving, the cause of that suffering, occurs only in the present moment. Even when the conditions for suffering occurred in the past, the thought or memory of those conditions is occurring in the present. We emphasize the present moment in our practice as an attempt to understand clearly how craving functions in the present moment. In the present moment, we can find both the cause and the relief from our suffering. So, quite simply, the present moment is the place where we will understand the Four Noble Truths. As we practice, first we try to stabilize ourselves in the present moment. 
we settle into our body, listen to sounds, or feel the sensations of breathing. Once we are in the present moment, we can begin exploring our experience. What are we driven toward? What we push away? How we create our suffering? The truth of the cessation of suffering. The third noble truth expresses the possibility of liberation, of the cessation of suffering or the end of suffering. When we see our suffering and understand clearly how it arises out of craving, we know that freedom from suffering is possible when craving is released. The word nibbana or nirvana refers to freedom from suffering. While the Theravada tradition sometimes describes nibbana as a great happiness or peace, more often it has been defined as resulting from the complete absence of clinging or craving. One reason for this negative definition is that nibbana is so radically different from what can be described through language that it is best not to try. Another reason is so that the goal of Buddhist practice is not obscured with metaphysical speculations about the nature of the goal. Still another reason for the negative definition of Nibbana is to avoid confusing it with any particular states of being. We easily become attached to states such as calm, peace, joy, clarity, or radiant light, states that sometimes arise during meditation practice, but which are not its goal. We may believe that we need to attain them if we are to realize the third noble truth, but if we remember non-clinging is the means to release, then we will be less inclined to cling to any state. Don't cling to your happiness. Don't cling to your sadness. Don't cling to any attainment. The truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering Letting go of all of our clinging is not easy. Developing understanding, compassion, and mindfulness to see well enough to let go of our suffering is quite difficult. The, four noble truths, uh, the fourth noble truth is pragmatic. It describes in eight steps the path that leads to freedom from suffering. The Noble Eightfold Path gives us the steps that help us create the conditions that make spiritual maturity possible. They are 1. Right understanding 2. Right intention 3. Right speech 4. Right action 5. Right livelihood 6. Right effort 7. Right mindfulness and 8. Right concentration Sometimes this list is caught, taught Sequentially, a practitioner develops them in order, first clarifying his or her understanding and intention in order to stay off roads tangential uh, to simple path of the Four Noble Truths, and then setting in order his or her behavior in the world so that it can support the inner development of right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. In the sequential approach, a practitioner does not complete each step before moving on to the next. Rather, practice follows a spiral path in which one continually returns to the, the beginning each time with greater depth. Sometimes the list is not taught as a path to be developed sequentially. 
Rather, the eight steps are presented as eight aspects of the path, which are developed together. They are mutually supportive, each nourishing the others. The list is comprehensive, though. It shows us how we can bring the full range of our lives onto the path of practice. We can see this when these eight are categorized with the divisions of body, speech, and mind. Right action and right livelihood pertain to our bodily actions, right speech to our verbal ones, and the remainder to the domain of the mind and the heart. Sometimes the Eightfold Path is divided into three categories of ethics, inner practices, and insight, or sila, samadhi, and pana. In this case, right speech, right action, and right livelihood as aspects of ethics are taught as the beginning of the path. Following the development of ethics, the inner practices of effort, mindfulness, and concentration lead to the development of insight or wisdom. The Eightfold Path offers a rich world of practice. Studying and become familiar with it, uh, with all eight, is well worth the time and effort. Of the eight, the Vipassana tradition puts particular emphasis on mindfulness. In part, this is because when the mindfulness practice is thorough, the other aspects of the Eightfold Path follow in its wake. Mindfulness is also the key element for the transformation of liberation. Mindfulness practice is a vehicle for realizing the Four Noble Truths. In mindfulness practice, we learn how to pay attention in the present moment so that when suffering arises, we're able to notice it. We can take an interest in it instead of running away from it. We can learn how to be comfortable with suffering so that we don't act inappropriate because of our discomfort. Then we can begin understanding its roots and let go of clinging. All of the Buddhist teachings are an elaboration of the Four Noble Truths. By understanding this handful of leaves, a spiritual life can be a straightforward and practical. We can all experience the great joy and peace that comes from freedom from clinging. So you may be asking, well, how is that all relevant to the topic of resisting the Trump administration and the Republican parties trying to roll back our country to pre-civil rights era Jim Crow bullshit. Um, and I'll tell you, it's because you can't control everything around you. You can't you you can make an influence. You can have an impact for sure. But there's no way any of us can 100% control the situations we find ourselves in and uh the things that happen to us. However, what we can control is the way that we react when these things come up. Like the book was talking about the person who was stood up and was waiting for the, their date on the corner in the cold who never showed up. That's something they had no control over. 
However, they did have control over how they reacted to it. They could create a story saying, oh, this person doesn't respect me. This person isn't a real friend. This person was just toying with me, playing with me, and trying to, trying to and now is probably laughing at me or, or whatnot. And that could potentially be true, but it also very likely would not be true. Maybe something came up, maybe they forgot, maybe, you know, maybe they are in the hospital, who knows. But until you have all those facts, it's best to suspend your judgment because anger comes from feeling disrespected in that situation. And the person might not have been trying to disrespect that person at all. So we control the way that we react to things. And usually, usually because we, our minds are kind of on autopilot, you know, like if you ever, if you ever just sit calmly and watch your thoughts, it's amazing how they jump around, how they jump around randomly. You could start out thinking about what you're gonna cook for dinner and end up thinking about a vacation you, you took to Thailand or, 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 or the first time you got a Nintendo game or, you know, like just random stuff. And it just like bounces and bounces and bounces. In Buddhism, they call it the monkey mind. Because if you think of a monkey and the trees jumping from branch to branch and swinging, always on the move, you know, the unpredictable, uncontrollable, that's usually how our minds are. But with simple mindfulness practices, we can, we can, um, we can gain control of our minds. And with this control, um, that's where the power to resist comes from. You know, if you are debating a policy um, with a friend or, or an opponent or anybody who um, doesn't agree with you, it's very easy, especially if you feel very attached to the policy or, or the outcome, to really get emotionally involved in that. And what usually happens when somebody gets emotionally engaged like that is um, their emotions take over uh, from their rational, logical mind, right? And their, their mind closes and they become less willing to listen to the other perspective and to try to find common ground between the two. Um, I believe that Republican, Democrat, I believe that most people want the same thing. They want the chance at a good life. They want themselves and their neighbors to have an opportunity to live, survive, and thrive, and have, you know, a, a pleasant, peaceful life. 
we have different ways of, of going about that and different ideas about how to accomplish that for sure but when we allow ourselves to get emotionally engaged in arguments and debates then it just it cuts all that off and and and, and it clouds our judgment and it clogs our ears from hearing anything else and it makes us double down on our perspective and in our minds demonize the other side and in turn that divides us divides us it shuts the other side down gets them on the same path and all of a sudden the debating is is, is pointless because everybody just has their fingers in their ears and la 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 you know um however if we practice mindfulness and gain a little bit of power over our reactions to the situations that occur in our life then we'll be in a much clearer much more capable position uh, when dealing with those situations and so meditation and mindfulness and just gaining control of your of your of your thoughts in that way is very beneficial to the resistance um, you know the powers that be both democrat and republican the powers that be are controlled by big money interests uh, that's how i mean that's how it, how it's been working especially after citizens united in 2010 that was horrible decision because it opened the floodgates for money to come in to politics and corporations and billionaires don't just donate out of the kindness of their hearts or even for tax write-offs because you can't get a tax write-off for making political donations they donate because they want favors they, they buy politicians. Mike Bloomberg actually recently slipped up and said he bought politicians. He meant got politicians. He quickly corrected himself, but the word he said at first was bought. Um, and that's exactly what's happening. You, you accept the donation which you need so desperately for your campaign funding to get reelected and so you take that money and then after you take that money they come back and they say okay well remember that however much thousands we gave you well we have this bill here that affects our industry and we we, we wrote it and we would like you to get it passed and that's how a lot of our, our law our laws are being written they're being written by lobbyists and then they are being funneled through majority through Republican Party but it also happens in the Democratic establishment too it's one of the reasons why I like Bernie Sanders so much he 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 refuses and Elizabeth Warren they refuse to take corporate donations um, they, they only are taking donations from actual people.
and and both of them are um, are very courageous and not afraid to stand up against the powers that be. So in order to become the best fighter, the best resistor, we need to make sure that we are strong and we have control over our thoughts, our emotions, and our actions. And a great way to do that is through meditation and through the study of the Four Noble Truths and the eight, um, the Noble Eightfold Path. If you're not a Buddhist, that's okay. Um, most of the Buddha's teachings can be uh, adapted very well into whatever religion or non-religion you 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 um, you hold dear. Um, the one thing that I, I like probably the most about the Buddha is he always said, "Don't ever believe anything that I say, just because I'm so-called holy or enlightened or the Buddha." He said. Take what I use, or what, take what I teach, as instructions, and put them into practice and try them out in your own life. And if they don't work for you, if they don't prove to be true for you, set them aside. Don't necessarily write them off because maybe situations will change and they might be they might work in the future. So don't close your mind to them. But if, if they're not working then then there's no reason to continue with them and he had no issue with that he had no it wasn't going to hurt his feelings or anything like that there's no dogma that he said everybody must adhere to it was very practical very much how it works in your life and and if it doesn't work don't do it and yeah, that's the way I think that that we grow the best. So, yeah, that's about it for the commentary. I'm kind of done talking. But um, I hope you enjoyed this, and I hope you got something out of it. And I'm going to keep reading this book, and um, if there's any other chapters that I think might be interesting for y'all, um, I'll go ahead and read those to you as well, okay? I hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day, week, year, life, everything. And keep resisting. Keep resisting. Don't let them walk all over us. You know, one of the one of the ways that they remain in power, there's three. There's three. They keep us divided with petty politics and choosing sides. They love that Republicans and Democrats fight amongst each other because when we're fighting each other, we're not fighting the people who buy the politicians, the corporations who own and run this country. We're too busy fighting ourselves when we should be uniting ourselves under our common cause uh, goals and turning our fury on the powers that be. 
They also distract us with a whole bunch of nonsense. Like pretty much everything on cable news is, is, is nonsense. All the commentaries and stuff, that's just people's opinions. And it's very biased. Um, you know, I mean, they got to make their money. They got to make it sensational and stuff. But it distracts us from the real issues. Um, so yeah, keep resisting, keep an open mind, and keep trying to start those conversations that matter. And when you do, make sure you use active listening skills to, to really acknowledge and, and, and give the other side their chance of feeling heard. Because nobody likes to be in a conversation where they're just lectured to. No, nobody likes to feel like they're not being allowed to get their views and their point across. So remember to respect the other side, their time, their views, their energy, their energy and keep it civil and friendly and, and it should go better than it would if you allow your anger and frustration to guide your reactions. So namaste, and I'll talk to you next time. Peace.